This is an ABC podcast. Dr Gemma Green is one of my heroes. She does magical maths with things called blockchain to enable apartment dwellers in Australia to share the costs of solar fairly and so let our nation exploit renewables to a far greater extent than is now possible. Perhaps an increase of 30%, just imagine. But, but, she had one big lacuna, one deficiency that left her ignorant of the title of this program, Occam's Razor. She had been to Cambridge and not to Oxford, where William of Ockham once flourished. Dr Gemma Green is now at Curtin University in Perth, and she's certainly made amends. I've never studied philosophy, so I wasn't familiar with the name Ockham. When I was asked to do this talk, I had to look it up. Who was Ockham? Why was his razor so important? Did he have a lot of stubble? Did his partner borrow his razor to do her legs? <laughs> and <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Ockham's razor is a 14th century notion that roughly states, given a choice, the least effort or action is the best explanation or route to pursue. It's attributed to William of Ockham, a friar who wrote logical and theological works. So if there's a complex and convoluted explanation for something and a simple one which requires fewer assumptions, the one with the fewer assumptions is the way forward. Well, the more I looked at it, the more I realised that it was one of the most profound and far-reaching notions humans had ever noticed. Well worth 10 minutes of study. It developed into a principle that's also called the principle of least action, and it finds its way into all sorts of aspects of our lives. The way humans work in interactions when they're deciding what to eat for breakfast. The way spiders build their webs, getting maximum strength for minimum silk. And the hexagonal honeycomb gives bees maximum honey storage for the least wax production. Even the way balls fly in the air and the way particles interact in a quantum world. More on that later. But the first application that people always take the minimum path of action and not necessarily the right action was news to me when I was in my early 30s. About 10 years ago, I was a sustainability officer for a bank, so fairly low down the food chain, and I wanted to start improving the bank's sustainability profile. It was plain to see there was an awful lot of waste in the office. That waste started right near my desk where nobody recycled anything. It got into its swing first thing in the morning with the tide of ritual shop-bought coffees and it went on into the lunchtime when everybody unpacked their sandwiches from many boxes and cartons. Seeing this pile of cardboard and plastic filling up in the non-recycling bin, I decided to try and institute some recycling in the office. So we put in some green bins at the end of the office so people could chuck their cardboard lunch packaging and other things into it. But nobody used it. They chucked all their waste into their non-green bin under their own desks. Why? Because it was easier. It presented the path of least action. And so I hatched a plan. I worked with my supervisor to remove all the local non-green <laughs> bins. So people would have to make the extra trip to the green bin and we could get some recycling going. 
but I hadn't really understood the principle of least action in human terms. Because for my office colleagues, the easiest thing to do now wasn't to walk an extra few metres to the green bins. It was to launch a complaint and get the non-green bins reintroduced. <laughs> and that was the end of my easy recycling initiative at the bank. The problem was that I hadn't found the root of least action. I'd found a root of second least action, and that was going exactly nowhere. At a psychological level, we are at our best when we react to things the least. I gained this insight from executive trainer Carrie Granger and also from dealing with my children. If I react to whatever when they're trying to be naughty, they just get naughtier. It gives them what they want from their naughtiness, which is attention. So as a parent, you have to get to a place of acceptance and not just resist and punish. A mood of acceptance takes less effort than resisting, even though it might not seem like it at the time. But the whole idea of least action goes into a deeper place when you start looking at maths and physics and start looking at the works of Maupertier. In 1750, he took the concept of least action and applied it to light. So why does light bend when it goes into a glass of water? Sure, it travels in straight lines normally, but when glass or something transparent is involved, it's doing something else. If you were a light beam and you could choose which route was the easiest path, you'd want to reduce the bit through the glass because it's the hard bit, but not reduce it so much that you have to travel through a lot more air. And that's the least action balance nature always finds. It's as though light beams have the same aversion to excess effort as my colleagues did when they were avoiding the recycling bin program. So around this time, 1750, the principle of least action had really caught hold of scientific imagination and mathematicians like Lagrange and Euler were starting to work with it in all sorts of applications. A ball thrown in the air. Its action is to turn kinetic energy into height energy and Lagrange asked, what's the least action way that this could happen? He constructed a whole field of mechanics that was deeper and more powerful than anything done before. Lagrange and least action found its use outside physics. It gets used by economists all the time. But perhaps the most surprising thing about that work done in the 18th century is what happens when you fast forward two whole centuries. Two major bits of physics later, quantum and relativity, come together to produce the state of the art physics, relativistic quantum mechanics. And what shows up at the heart of all this theory? The theory of least action. In 1948, the brilliant physicist Richard Feynman dusts down least action and wins a Nobel Prize for quantum mechanics. The central idea is that you assume everything can happen because, hey, it's quantum physics. But the one that happens most often is the one that uses the least action. Why does least action work in so many places? Who knows? Perhaps more usefully, the question is, how can we use it in today's world and specifically my work? I'm interested in helping people pay less for electricity and making electricity less carbon intensive. It's a big change and one that will almost certainly be resisted by the system as it stands. The energy producers, the distributors, the redistributors and the electrical manufacturers will be every bit as reluctant to change as my bank colleagues were. But this time we'll make sure Occam's razor is on our side. 
We're aiming to change things so that the least action is needed by the people who benefit. No thinking, no behaviour modification and definitely no green bins. What's the least path of action that will cut our electricity costs and reduce carbon intensity? Well, it turns out that all that smog and CO2 produced by power stations isn't just being produced because we need a lot of electricity. The real problem is that we have bumps in our need for it. When everyone switches on their aircon when they come home from work, for example, that's one big bump in demand. It's the bumps that require us to have fossil fuel power stations at this time. There's plenty of electricity to be had by solar if you just even out the bumps, so that's the project really evening out and minimising the bumps. If we could get most of our energy guzzling appliances like air conditioners, dryers, pool pumps and so on to work in a grouped system of least action, they could really smooth out these bumps in demand. And how do we get there? How do we get a washing machine in one home, a dryer in another home and an air conditioner in a third home all negotiating with one another to smooth out their electricity usage and to synchronise that usage to when most solar electricity is coming on the grid so the need for expensive batteries is minimised. All of these appliances could operate in a kind of unison, maybe linked by the internet and super-fast real-time price data. They could solve these electricity problems the same way bees have solved their honey storage problems. I see a future where devices book electricity like we book airline seats and get a discount for doing it ahead of time. You book a bunch of kilowatt hours for a particular device and you can't transfer it to another device, just like I can't resell my budget airline seat to my mate. And on the supply side, I see us creating a team of households, universities and factories, anyone with roof space and a garage for a big battery pack serving these bumps in demand. Because 90% of the money for electricity gets billed for just 20% of the peak electricity demand periods. Again, it will be least action involved. What's the minimum battery capacity that makes me the most money in peaking hours? So again, it will be some kind of least action thing that will shape the future of our electrical networks. And that's the future I'm working towards. It's a lot of work, but it's going to very interesting places. Can I see resistance to this program? You bet. Resistance that makes my green bin experience look just like a warm-up. But that's for another lecture. Thank you. Banker, mathematician, energy expert for the future, Dr Gemma Green also runs Power Ledger and lectures at Curtin University in Perth and knows now about William of Ockham, a friar who did not have to lend his razor to a wife, any wife. The Department of Sustainability at Curtin, under former WA Scientist of the Year Peter Newman, has many research projects that can help save our environmental predicaments, using combinations of expertise such as those Dr Jim Green displays so impressively. Now go to use the right bin. I'm Robin Williams. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.